And God is really doing something special. He is really assembling a group of people with a heart to take the message found in his word and to allow it to impact the way in which we do life. So I want to welcome you not just to a gathering, but to a family, a family that is seeking God through his word. Through this series, we are looking at the storytelling strategy of Christ as he interacted with great crowds, mixing their belief in him, but completely in all of the things that he was doing. So we take Christ, who was, who was doing some, some amazing things and drawing great crowds around him, and some would just come, <coughs> excuse me, as we talked last week, some would just come because a crowd gathers where there's something going on. So people would just gather around what Christ was doing. Some came to him because they needed something physically to be healed. They needed food. They needed provision. And so they would draw to Christ. But others found themselves in a complete awe and worship of him as they encountered him. And so through these parables, Christ taught them. And I shared with you last week that as we spend time walking through these parables that he taught, we must not miss, as many did in the crowd, the underlying message that Jesus Christ was bringing to the world. We must see more than just a story with a moral meaning, but we have to understand and embrace that, the, that Christ was, was bringing something new to the world, the message of a kingdom that God was building and restoring, and how the agent by which he chose to build and restore this kingdom is us, his church. So in the grand scheme of things, Jesus Christ created this master plan to, to restore his creation back to the way that he created it, and he chooses to do it through his broken people. And so with that thought in mind, my prayer is that we will continue to push as his church to not see his mission as something that we take credit for, that we are creative and we establish. Because you see, the gospel message is not at all about our mission. It's not about the mission of your life. It's not about exactly where God is leading you because the gospel message is about his mission that he has chosen to use us to accomplish. So may we embrace the thought this morning that we are diving into a mission that God has had in place since before the beginning of time. And you and I have a chance to share in that. And may we, may, may we be reminded this morning of the mission he's placed in front of us. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture to me about his plan is found in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear that? Jesus Christ became sin, one who did not know sin, and he became sin so that we might be called righteous. Sin, the old creation. Jesus Christ, and then through us, righteousness, the new creation. 
those who are in Christ Jesus are new creations. He has done something in you. He has done something in me, and he is changing who we are. And so because of that, may we as the church join together to present the story of a king and his kingdom. May we recognize that our role in this world is to to tell the story of a king and his kingdom that he is establishing. And it is critical for our discussion this morning to recognize that in talking about a kingdom, we recognize that without a king, there is not a kingdom. The rule of Jesus Christ in his kingdom is where we find freedom. It is through his king, the king and the kingdom that we find true freedom in life. And so as the king, when we think about this kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ as the king. What did he accomplish in, in, in the rule of this kingdom? And how can his birth and his death and his resurrection beat sin for us? How does that accomplished? And the, because the bill that our sin created is not paid through nails that were driven into the hands and feet of Christ. That's not ultimately what the physical act that happens, not ultimately what paid the price. We do not acknowledge him as king because he endured mockery as a king and was crowned a king with a crown of thorns. He did not sweat drops of blood in the garden as he prayed because he feared the physical demonstration and punishment that would fall on him. We proclaim him as king because all these events were the physical display of King Jesus absorbing the wrath of God against us. And so God did not turn his back on Christ because he couldn't bear to see him suffer. He turned away because his wrath against our sin was being poured out on his son. And the cup that Jesus had to drink was difficult. So we acknowledge him as king and recognize what he did, as we've talked in the past few weeks, is he, is, he absorbed the wrath of God against our sins. So this morning, as we look intently in God's word to find out what his kingdom is like, may we not forget the king. May the details of the gospel story force us to our knees to worship him as king because he accomplished something that we could not accomplish May we as a body be willing to give everything for his kingdom. May we take God's word to us, his people, and be devoted to its teachings so that you and I will learn more about the God that we worship and find ourselves in a state of deep awe before him. May may the gospel story not just be something that we just learn the details of the story, but may it impact the way in which we do life. May it impact the way in which we leverage our resources for the kingdom. May we recognize that our role on this earth is to present the details of what God has been doing since before he created. One last thing before we dive into the text for this morning in Matthew 13, or as we continue Matthew 13, I want to remind you that last week we talked about a parable is basically distinguished by three different things. One is that it would be a very relevant story. To the people of the time of the recipients of this text, they would have completely understood what was going on here. Many of them have sowed seed, and they had reaped a harvest, and so they understood what was taking place here. So it's very relevant. They often created cultural irony. In a lot of cases, Christ had people in which he was trying to teach the lesson. He had them answer their own question, even though it was in opposition of the way in which they were doing life. He had them answer the question on their own, and it would completely create this ironic situation. And thirdly, the main concern of parables we talked about last week, it deals with the kingdom of God And man's response to it. So last week we learned through the parable of the sower that Jesus taught deep truths through a very simplistic approach of telling a story and technique. 
And he basically pulled back the layers so that we could begin to see the depths. He began to reveal to us his kingdom through the depths of his word. And so for our time together, we're going to continue reading Matthew 13 to learn about what the kingdom of God is. Last week, the gateway, that there's something deeper to the story. He is introducing a kingdom. And this week, what does that kingdom look like? And so before we get into Matthew 13, would you please join me in prayer as we ask God to teach us this morning. God, we thank you for this time together. God, I thank you that you have allowed a group of people to gather together in your name with the same desire to see your, your name made great on this earth, God. And God, as we take your word that was that was breathed into existence by you and was given to us as a guide. And God, may this word transform who we are. May the truths of this word overshadow, God, any personal thoughts on the way life should be done. But may everything we do and everything we say and everything we accomplish be filtered through your word, God. And not just so that we fall in love with a book with words on pages, but that we fall in love with the God that this book talks about. So God, that is our prayer this morning, that you be our guide and you be our teacher. And we glorify you for it this morning. Amen. Matthew 13, if you'll join me in verse 24. And we're just going to kind of take this reading. I want us to just read through the whole text this morning and allow it to kind of let the words, let what Christ taught us, let it teach us this morning just in its reading. And then I want us to gather some things from it this morning. So Matthew 13, verse 24. This is immediately after he's explained to his disciples the parable of the sower that we talked about last week. So verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 31, he put another parable for them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, 
let him hear. So we see this three parables all talking about how he can try to attempt to describe to them through storying what the kingdom of God is like. You know, the farmer in this passage is Jesus. It says the, the farmer is the son of man. We know that long before Jesus even burst into the landscape, scriptures prophesied that he would come. So we, though, though they didn't know how he would come or what it would look like, they knew that there was a Messiah that was prophesied that would come. And when Jesus began his ministry, he instantly began planting the seeds. As we see in Mark chapter 1, the first recorded words of Mark, of, of Jesus, were the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, so from a very early stage, Christ began sowing a seed. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very much a guy that we still uh, attempt to live out in our lives. So, so we see Jesus is the farmer. The field in this passage is the world. I mean, look at verse 24 again. In verse 24, it says, The kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And we see the interpretation in verse 38. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So we see the field is not the church. It's not the people. It's the world. He sowed the seed into his creation. The good seed, as we learn in verse 38, is those that believe the gospel message. It is the sons of the kingdom. But we see from this passage that there is an enemy. There's something going on here because he is introducing the elements of his kingdom and the farmer sowed. I mean, he, they were even, the, it says that his servant said, I mean, you know, with all due respect, you're the farmer. You did sow good seed, right? Because obviously something else happened here because there's multiple things growing here. And so he tells them that what he sowed was good and it was perfect and it was right. And so the seed in which was, was, was sowed that, that produced the weeds was seed that was from the evil one. The enemy, the devil, and his kingdom is opposed and in opposition to the kingdom of God. So we see that this is played out in this parable. But we also see that in the end, there is a harvest that will happen. We see in the end that one day, even though the seed and the wheat wheat and 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 the weeds grow together, that one day a harvest will happen when Christ returns. And so as I think about this, it'd be very easily, this thing is often preached just in the good versus bad and, and, and all that. But do you see from this passage how the gospel just screams from this parable? In fact, it goes right in line with, the, with what Christ originally began to sow when he walked onto the landscape. Repent and believe the gospel. And so we see that completely played out in the parable of the weeds, and this passage is very seldom taught in the con- uh, is most of the time it's taught in the context of good versus bad, heaven versus hell, believers versus sinners, wheat versus weeds. It's kind of this separation thing. But to me, this parable is about so much more about his kingdom. If you look back, he, he began each of the parables by comparing them to what the kingdom of heaven is like. So it was not just a parable about good versus evil, although the gospel message is, but it was a parable about what his kingdom is about. And so this morning, what I want us to do is just kind of talk about what is the kingdom of God. We're talking about how when Jesus came, he's restoring a kingdom in which he will reign. And we're talking about how, what this kingdom will look like. And so this morning, I want us to take this parable along with some other scripture. And I want us to talk about what the kingdom of God is. In Genesis 1, God takes the void of nothingness and he pours himself out onto the canvas and he creates that's the beginning of this whole kingdom. In John 1, we learn that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So his plan of provision came before the, he, he even spoke anything into existence. But in Genesis 1, he creates. He creates the universe, the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. And that that he sowed 
was good. I mean, it was the way he intended to be, it to be, and he liked it. Every, he, when he finished creating each day, he said, man, it is good the way it was intended to be. There's nothing shady at all about his creation. It is perfect. It is peaceful. It is in perfect rhythm, or as the Hebrews would write, it's in perfect shalom. There is just this perfect unity and rhythm to everything that he created. He created man and woman, and he places them in this perfect place in this garden where there is perfect unity and worship of him. So, so, so we see he, he creates. He creates man and woman, and he places them in this place. And, and things are, I mean, things are just so pure. If you think back to that story, I mean, they are, Adam and Eve, you know, they're walking around naked and they just don't even recognize it because everything is into worship of God. It's perfect. There's, it's just the way that God intended it to be. He tells them to eat and drink. He tells them don't eat from this one tree and to be fruitful and multiply. That's it. Enjoy what I have created. Enjoy where I have placed you. Enjoy the worship of me don't eat from this one tree. That's the one thing you don't have to do, that you can't do, and to be fruitful and multiply. Well, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they're enjoying this purpose in which they were created, and just all of life explodes into worship of God. But then sin enters the world, and now the shalom is thrown off. The rhythm is off base now. I mean, the same people, the same place, the same surroundings, but they, as we know, they go and they eat of the one thing that they're not supposed to eat, and things are completely derailed, completely thrown off. There is no more rhythm anymore. I often think of, of you know, I think a lot of the reason why our kids today have, uh, have anxiety issues and, 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 and just some things that they, they encounter, you know, I think you can attribute to it to two things. One is spelling bees, and the other is musical chairs. And, and you know, you think about how this goes, okay? <laughs> Musical chairs, I used to hate this deal because you knew what was going to happen, okay? So, so when the game starts, everything's perfect. Everybody has a chair. Everything's nice and smooth, and everybody's happy and in complete peace and unity. I mean, I mean you, you go in, and you're, you know, it's game time. Everybody's sitting around just like so, and everything's perfect. And then the music starts. And, and the music starts, and every, everybody begins to do their little deal. You know, you think you were like... By the way the game plays itself out, you think you were like playing for a pot of gold or something because everybody's just in a frantic mode. But, but everybody starts going, and during the middle of the song, you know what happens? A chair's removed. So now where you may have started with ten chairs and ten people, now you've got ten chair, ten, uh, nine chairs and ten people. So the game starts, it begins, and there you go. You begin to walk around the circle, and then the music stops. And what was a very peaceful stroll becomes mass chaos. You've seen it, those of you that are teachers or those of you who have been a part of this thing. You know, what was flowers and butterflies, it's now Armageddon. I mean, kids are going nuts. There's nine chairs and there's ten people and they just begin to go crazy. And, and, and it completely destroys everything that was peaceful and perfect about it. And I kind of see this parallel playing out in creation. Everything was created in perfect unity. And when something was removed and, and, and it entered into that place, it completely threw everything off. And so now what God created in his kingdom that he planted, it's now fractured and broken. It's not the way that it was supposed to be. And ever since then, God has been leading a process to restore all things back to the way he intended them to be. From that point on, the whole message of the Bible unifies itself together to teach a message of restoration that God is still doing today. And God shows up several generations later. He reveals himself to Abraham. He tells them that he will create a great nation through Abraham. The Abraham covenant is formed. 
And, and then for several generations, we don't get much. And then Moses hits the scene, and through one life event after the next, he eventually finds himself in the desert. And God tells Moses, hey, Moses, it's time. You, you know the promised land, that land of milk and honey that we talked about. It's time to go. It's time to go there. And Moses says, I can't because I stutter, which I think uh, in, in his encounter, that was a very lame excuse to a God who calls you. But Moses, he leads the Israelites away from Pharaoh and to the brink of the promised land. But due to some disobedience, Abraham doesn't get to go in. He kills them and he sends their children into the land. So Joshua, he le- leads the Israelites into the promised land. He establishes a kingdom with him as king, but the Israelites want a man to lead them. Everybody else has an earthly king. We want an earthly king. So they are giving, given a king. So the Israelites continue to wait for the promise of the kingdom. Jesus Christ enters the scene as promised. And he is, begins to establish his kingdom that even in his presence they miss. E- even among him, they didn't get what the kingdom he was talking about was. Let's uh, hold your place there and go to Luke 17. And I want us to see this this morning. Luke 17, verse 20, Jesus has just cleansed uh, 10 lepers and has sent them uh, on their way. One returns to thank him, and coming right off that, it says in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, this is Jesus, this is king, right? Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So, so, so Jesus is telling them, look guys, the kingdom's not going to rush in like the kingdom you are expecting. It's not going to come onto the landscape like you think. No one's going to say that, is this the kingdom? Is it over there? Where is it? Because he said that the kingdom, you want to know where it is, it's here. Here's the kingdom. It's in your midst. It's all around you. And so Jesus teaches him that. He dies, he's buried, he comes back to life to pay for our sin debt. He leaves the world, he places his Holy Spirit inside of us, and the church forms for the purpose of proclaiming the original message of Christ to repent and believe in the gospel, the kingdom. And now we are messengers of that same message. We are ambassadors of Christ. Christ reconciling things through us. We have been given the message of reconciliation. So through this passage, as we look at the parables this morning, what do we learn about the kingdom of God? In a nutshell, I think we learn that the kingdom of God is the result of the mission of God to rescue and restore his creation. That's the kingdom of God in a nutshell, his mission to rescue and restore his creation. But through this restoration process, through Jesus establishing his rule and reign over creation and bringing back rhythm and the shalom, the beneficiaries are not us. He, He didn't do all of this for our good. Jesus restores everything so that he might be worshiped as Lord. The end result of life, the end result of his kingdom, the purpose of it all is so that he might be worshipped. And the kingdom of God is not about a good moral teacher, but a sinless man who modeled the way in which his bride should live in the world with a hope in the next. The kingdom message of God is not about how to go to heaven when you die, but how to restore fellowship between creation and the creator. The kingdom message of God is not just about how we can enter into this personal relationship with Christ, for our own benefit, but it is about going and sharing that with all of creation. So the kingdom message of God is that through the king, our spiritual fall, our fractured relationship with God the Father can only be healed through his death alone. No other way. And through this, we are commissioned to not only believe the gospel message, but to be transformed 
to where we share it with others. So this morning, as we take all of that grand scheme of things and wrap it all up into this one parable, I think we learned four things this morning about the kingdom of God through Matthew 13. I think the first thing we learned through the parable of the weeds is that we have to recognize that there is a conflict. We have to recognize that as the kingdom of God is coming, there is a conflict. In Matthew 13, as quickly as we read that the farmer sowed good seed in his field, we read that the enemy came and corrupted what was intended for perfection. There is an opposing kingdom. We have to recognize in this life that we have an enemy. The kingdom of God is being opposed by the kingdom of Satan, and you and I must stand guard against these attempts. We've got to be aware of these things. Jesus Christ, he spoke of a new kingdom that was completely opposite the world's understanding of a kingdom. And as we'll look next week, the truth of his kingdom, it challenges us to a different lifestyle, to do life a different way. And I can tell you it is opposed strongly by the evil one. So you and I must stand guard and be prepared because on the spiritual realm we are in a battle. But we also must quickly recognize that the threat to the kingdom of God is not always from evil things alone. It's not always opposition to the kingdom of God and the conflict that is there is not always recognizable as good versus evil. And we have to be prepared for that. In, in 1919, the Chicago White Sox were matched with the Cincinnati Reds in one of the most unbelievable sports stories of all times. It was a best of nine series, which is the, the Major League Baseball usually didn't play it that way, but they were trying something new. And so the White Sox first baseman, he collaborated with a professional gambler and a mobster to place a large bet on the series and to convince his teammates to intentionally lose the World Series. And it was later exposed. Eight of the White Sox players, although in trial they were found innocent, they were completely banned for, from baseball for the rest of their life. As I thought about that story, I began to think, do you know who beat the White Sox in the 1919 World Series? It wasn't the Reds. It was the eight men who were a part of the scandal who completely blew the chances for the remaining part of the team. Because, you see, no matter how bad the White Sox management and team would have wanted to win, it wasn't going to happen. Because the worst enemy of the White Sox that day were their own team. And I fear so often that we as the church of God settle for less than what God calls us to. And we become an enemy from within the kingdom of God. Kind of this Trojan horse deal where the enemy comes in and it just completely blows up from the inside. And we've got to stand guard and be careful. And we obviously know that sin and Satan are our enemies. Those are easy to recognize. But oftentimes I'm afraid that the good things we do, the easy attempts at doing right, can often hinder us from taking the bold steps for the kingdom of God that he calls us to. I have a fear of that. We can quickly deceive ourselves as a church into believing that involvement in our programs automatically means devotion to a kingdom. Attempts at doing good that require time and resources maybe can replace the radical calling on the church to abandon all for the kingdom. And, and you know, to be honest and, and transparent with you this morning, I can't stand here and say that I'm completely there. I mean, I struggle like the rest of you. But I can tell you that we must stand guard if the enemy does not attack us from within. We have to stand guard and be careful that we're not lured to sleep by programs that, and, and just involvement with things and, 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 and no involvement or commitment to a kingdom. So my prayer this morning is we recognize that there is a conflict is that we may not settle for mediocrity. The message is too important. The message is too critical. I mean, do you understand the intensity of, of the gospel message that we covered at the beginning that it is the only truth, it is the only hope for this world. That's it. 
So we make a choice this morning, and the choice is either we commit to spreading this message so that people may have a chance at the only hope, or we choose not to. That's the choice today. We we don't choose what level of involvement we desire to be a part of. We don't say, God, I'll give you this much or this much. He gave everything, and he tells us that you have a hope for this whole world, and it is in your hearts, and you have a choice to either take it or not, take it to the world or not. So I pray that our personal lives on this earth do not overtake the call to die that Christ places to us. Our city around us depends on us. The time has come where God's agenda must mean more to us than our own. Our lives must be lived with an unquenchable hunger to know Christ and to make him known to others for the sake of his kingdom. So we recognize from the parable of the weeds that there's obviously conflict because what was planted is good seed there were other seeds sowed along with it. But I think the second thing we notice about this is that we have to recognize that his kingdom is in process. There is a process taking place. We learn, look at three parables this morning from Matthew 13. Three different things. The parable of the weeds. It appears there's an absence of the kingdom of God, but we have to see that a process is happening. You know, to me, this parable is kind of tough because I'm kind of like the, 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 the servants of the, the farmer. I'm thinking, why don't we just go and let's just pluck out the weeds? I mean, let's have a little, you know, temple beast mode Jesus that goes and cleans some stuff out. You know, farmer Jesus, let's send the workers with some Roundup and let's, let's settle this problem right now. And I, I see why they respond that way. But he says, no, you have to wait. The kingdom is a process. And to me, I love it because it is just like our God to not immediately pluck out the bad weeds because his desire is to change people for his glory. I love that. His desire is to see people change for his glory. All of us in this room have been in a situation where we found ourselves, where our life has reflected a life from bad seed. But through his kingdom, he is transforming lives. We see two other parables. The parable of the mustard seed and the bread. The kingdom of God starts small and it may take time, and in time, uh, more time to develop, but the end, in the end, it explodes. What began as a little seed is now a massive tree, the biggest thing in the garden. So we can't lose heart when bad things happen in life and in our world. These are not an indication that the kingdom is being defeated. Because we have an assurance that the kingdom is moving. It is a process that is happening. We must understand that while the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is a destination, the kingdom is also a journey towards that completion. We have to recognize both this morning. His kingdom is a mission to restore the fractured world that was broken by sin, but it is also the conclusion and completion when Christ returns. So we see this morning that his kingdom is a process. It is both a destination and a journey. But I think we see a third thing this morning from this parable about his kingdom in that we, have, we must recognize our existence in this world and this culture. We must recognize our existence in this world in this culture. The perfect seed was sown and it grew in the same place as the product of the imperfect seed. The greatest revelation of the kingdom will come through our involvement with unbelievers. The message of the kingdom of God is going to be its greatest when we find ourselves in interaction with unbelievers. I often wonder what what, what revival might happen, what revolution would occur in our culture if we as God's church would abandon our philosophies toward church as a subculture, and we began to focus on spending time and building relationships with people on the margins. 
I, I wonder what the advancement of the kingdom would look like. And I think it's so important that it's the church began to abandon our approach of entertaining the notions of the kingdom and learning about the kingdom, but living a life that is unaffected by the kingdom. It's time that we take the principles and apply it to our life. You know, my heart absolutely breaks for the lost. I was telling somebody this past week that, look, the, the gospel message is not something we have to defend. It's truth. There's two things that it offers. It is truth, and it offers hope in this life, and it can come from no other place. And so our interaction with the lost in this world are to teach them the truth and to offer them the same hope. And I pray that as we walk through this world that we recognize just as good seed or wheat grew next to weeds, that we understand that we are seeing that played out in our life and we must find ourselves engaged in the world and culture around us. There's a final thing this morning and that I think we learn from this parable about the kingdom of God and that's that we must recognize that the completion of the kingdom that was ushered in through the life of Christ will we'll, we'll find its completion when he returns. I want you to flip over Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning uh, with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen to this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, which will be the redemption of our bodies. And so we recognize that creation, it came from God, it belongs to Him, and it will be restored through Him. In verse 42 and 43 of Matthew 13, we see that in the end, two things will take place. One to motivate us, and one as a reward. We see that people will experience a very real separation from God. That is what happens to those that, who don't receive the message that we are called to go and take to them. People will experience very real separation from God. And to me, this is the greatest torment anyone could ever encounter. But we see a second thing, and that is that the righteous, I love the way this is worded, the righteous will bask in the kingdom of their father. What a great thought. That the kingdom of God, which has been in process since before he breathed creation into existence, is evolving and growing to the point that we one day will bask in the kingdom of the Father. So I ask you this morning, as we look at the kingdom, last week talking about that the kingdom was being introduced, this week talking about what the kingdom looks like. Our question is, what will be life for us? What will it look for, like for us? Will we continue to trade the kingdom of God for our personal kingdoms? Will we still choose to take the kingdom of God and, and put it to the side and establish our own kingdom in which we sit on the throne? Or, or will you and I be willing to take the message of a king and a kingdom and allow it to be what penetrates and changes our hearts 
so that it affects us as we go into this world. Our prayer is will we choose to utilize our resources for our advantage or for the advantage of the kingdom. And our, my prayer is that his church will rise up and will complete the mission that God began in the beginning of time. So as we have had a chance this morning to talk about what the kingdom looks like, next week we're going to talk about how your life is impacted by that. What does a life live with the kingdom of God at hand? What does that look like? But my prayer this morning is that we do not miss what his kingdom is. That you and I internalize the truth of what his kingdom is because it will impact the way in which you and I do life. It will impact our mission. And so my prayer is that we as people will carry this message of the gospel of a king who is establishing a kingdom and we will take it to the world that is around us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you this morning for this truth, God. I thank you that we do not serve a God that we have to guess or wonder if the message of of who he is is truth because it is, God. God, I thank you for this time in your word this morning, God, and a subject that is kind of informative, God, but I pray that we don't just miss the message that you were trying to speak to us this morning by just learning facts about your kingdom. But God, that we'll be motivated to know that this is the only way. Jesus said, he is the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So God, may that be the lifestyle that we live. May we take the words of Jesus in Mark, in the book of Mark, God, and may we teach, God, repent and believe the gospel. God, may that be our, our, our battle cry as we encounter this world around us. Repent. Because we are living fractured lives, not the way that you created us to be. May we repent of that, God. And in light of that, may we receive and believe the gospel. A gospel message that although we are broken and fractured people, that you have a plan to not leave us that way. But but God, you have a plan to restore your creation back to the way that you desired it to be. So God, may you find your people faithful. God, may we as the church stop settling for just mediocrity, God, and and, and stop gauging the the movement of your kingdom through through a scorecard that's incorrect, God. But may we as the church begin to see the movement of your kingdom as people's hearts are changed and lives are changed and people who once found themselves without hope, God, finding hope in this message, in this gospel. So God, may we as your people have that burden on our hearts. God, to not be satisfied, to not find ourselves content, God, until your message has reached all nations. God, let it begin here in Hattiesburg and let it explode through our city, God, but let it also end, God, as we continue to see your message carried to the nations. So, God, I pray that you just intensify, fan the flame, God, that burns for your kingdom. God, intensify our calling on our hearts. God, intensify our devotion to you. Intensify, God, our willingness to go and to to give and to offer whatever we have to offer so that your name may be made great. So God, during this time, as we just spend some more time worshiping you, God, may we make decisions in our heart. God, if there's someone here that their life has never merged into the story of the gospel message, God, if the fruit of their life has no indication of a relationship with you, God, may today be the day that you begin writing their life story into your gospel to restore all people. So God, may today be that day, God, and I pray for those of us who are in relationship with you. 
God, that we will be pushed to a deeper level of commitment. God, you call no one to part-time service because you didn't give part-time grace or die a part-time death. God, you call us to offer everything while we have time to spread your message. And God, may we find our hearts being pulled closer and closer to that. May we be willing to leverage our time and our resources and our energy, God, and our family life and May we, and, our, and our, our leisure time. God, may we be willing to leverage everything for the advancement of your kingdom. Motivated by love that you have for us that we in turn have for other people. And God, we will give you the glory for that. So move in this time, God. Allow us as we stand before you and worship you, God, to allow all of this to settle in on our hearts and our lives, God. And in reflection, may we worship you for who you are. God, I ask this this morning in Jesus' name, who God, apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, Him absorbing the wrath. God, apart from that, we have no life. But God, through that, we have life eternal. And we thank you for that this morning. So in His name, we do ask these things.